Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. We've got a treat in store for you today. We have Mary McNeil, a good friend of the Explaining History podcast, returning to us to talk about uh, American journalism in the Pentagon Papers and Watergate era and looking at whistleblowers from Daniel Ellsberg to John Dean. So without further ado, let's interview, let's carry on with the interview and say hi to Mary and uh, hear all about this period uh, and her area of expertise, the uh, journalist Wallace Carroll. Thanks very much. Okay, and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. Um, I'm delighted to um, invite back to the podcast Mary McNeil. If you guys are regular listeners, you might know that Mary and I spoke last year uh, about the the life and times of uh, the great journalist Wallace Carroll, who was um, one of these sort of large, larger than life journalistic figures that arguably you don't kind of get anymore. One of these sorts of um, kind of figures that appears at, at you know kind of almost sort of like Hemingway style at key moments of twentieth century history. And. <laughs> um, Today, we were going to have a slightly different conversation. Um, you, you may have observed recently that um, the the kind of the perhaps the most famous whistleblower of the 20th century, uh, Daniel Ellsberg, from whom uh, it could be said that the the kind of the late later 1960s protest movement wouldn't wouldn't really have been what it was without him passed away at the, the ripe old age of 90 something um, the other week. And I thought it was kind of appropriate, really to return to kind of questions of uh, of Watergate and journalism and integrity. And of course, um, uh, Wallace Carroll himself had, had views on this. So welcome again, Mary, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you, it's great to be back. Okay, so so to, to begin, um, so the, the Watergate scandal in itself kind of has almost a, a sort of, 
a prequel in in the the, the Pentagon Papers. The the two are sort of part of a seamless whole, but roughly for those that don't know, roughly kind of what was the Pentagon Papers scandal? Right, I I do think they are linked, and I think the Pentagon Papers were in a way crucial to what happened in in Watergate. Uh, just a short summary. Um, in 1971, the New York Times got a hold of what are called the Pentagon Papers. And what they were, were the government's uh, information on their intervention into Vietnam, particularly the military's intervention. They were uh, housed initially at the U.S. Department of Defense. And they published reports from this. And um, at the time, the administration, which was Richard Nixon, said that this was harmful to U.S. security, and therefore they should not publish these papers. And uh, a judge ordered an injunction to stop the publication. Then several days later, the Washington Post got a hold of the papers from Ellsberg, who was the one who originally made them available. Ellsberg was working at MIT. Uh, in a center for strategic analysis. And uh, McNamara, who was the defense secretary at the time, had brought Ellsberg on as sort of a consultant on the war and, and to about, provide advice. So Ellsberg was the one that went out on a limb. He had these papers and he made them available, I believe, first to the New York Times, but for sure to the Washington Post. Mm -hmm. And if, if your viewers or listeners have seen the movie, The Post, which was done by Spielberg and had um, was about Catherine Graham and what she did during this time around the Pentagon Papers. It gives you a pretty good background mm -hmm. on them. Um, anyway, uh, when the Post published the papers, the judge in, in the district the Post was in would not issue an injunction. And so what they did was they combined it with the New York Times case, which at that point had gone all the way up to the US Supreme Court. And in June of 1971, the U.S. Supreme Court uh, decided in a six to three decision that the New York Times and the Washington Post had the right to publish uh, the papers because they had not shown an adequate burden of proof that it would hurt the national security. Mm -hmm. So this was kind of a, a landmark decision. And in fact, uh, the the justice justice black who wrote the decision i want to if i could just read what he said please do that's yeah. the it totally sets the the groundwork for watergate which was to come uh black wrote only a free and unrestrained press can effectively expose deception in government and paramount among the responsibilities of a free press is the duty to prevent any part of the government from deceiving the people and sending them off to distant lands to die of foreign fevers and foreign shot and shell. So that pretty much opened the door for the press to sort of be able to um, publish papers that the government might not want them to publish. Mm -hmm. So all of this is background. This is 1971. And as early as um, 1970, there were some nefarious things going on in the Nixon administration. And and this part of it I got from a lecture that Wallace Carroll actually gave to students in 1983 about Watergate. And mm -hmm. in his usual way, he was very good at pointing out how things developed in a clear way. Um, basically, um, 
Watergate, what happened is the following. Richard Nixon, because he had lost very close elections uh, in 1960 to John F. Mm -hmm. Kennedy, and then again in 1967, he had run for governor of California and lost that in a very close election. So when he won in 1968, he was determined that he wasn't going to lose another election. Mm -hmm. And so he... Um, set up a committee which was called the Committee to Re-Elect the President. And the acronym is called CREEP, C-R-E-E-P, which is rather rather illustrative, as, as the story unwinds, you'll see. And CREEP proceeded to do things that at that time were not legal. Mm -hmm. And the main thing they did was to get money from corporations uh, to support the re-election campaign. Corporations like American Airlines was one, General Electric was another. And at that time in the United States, there was a limit on how much money corporations could give to elections. Yeah. Um, since changed, and I, I'll talk about that. So, but to get the money, they had it laundered basically through Miami and uh you know, none of this was really known publicly, but the FBI and the CIA were looking at it. They sort of had an idea that some money laundering was going on. So what uh, Woodward and Bernstein found out um, when the break-in occurred and they started to investigate what creep this committee was doing, they found out that there was uh, money in Miami and they went down there and they found out that it had been laundered. And this <laughs> was really sort of the beginning of it. And it was a trace the money thing. Mm -hmm. and, um, we sort of forget that sometimes in the mythology around uh, Deep Throat and, and so on and so forth, that's all um, connected with Watergate. Mm -hmm. So they continue to do that. And the CIA uh, was also knew this was going on and the defense and um, the FBI knew this was going on. And at the time, Nixon had ordered the CIA and the FBI to stop their investigation mm -hmm. because he did not want them to find out that this money was illegally coming into his reelection campaign. So that's the backdrop. And then, you know, the, the, the story proceeds where um, they, uh, the seven people who did the break in were convicted and the hero of the story uh, according to Carol and others was a judge named judge John Sirica. Mm -hmm. And he was the presiding judge at the trial of the seven what are called plumbers who broke in to the Democratic National Committee uh, which, at Watergate, which caused this whole thing. And to summarize, Sirica had a very suspicious feeling about these seven folks. Um, he thought that they were perjuring themselves. And so he held back from sentencing them. And um, come to find out that uh, through the reporting and other mechanisms, it was found out that they had been uh, bribed by Nixon and Creed mm -hmm. to lie because they had been promised that they would be pardoned if they were found guilty, you know, they and but they wouldn't disclose where this was all coming from. And at the same time, Creep was doing other things like illegal wiretapping mm -hmm. and spreading very malicious stories about the candidates that Nixon would be running against in 1972, one of which was Edmund Muskie. And I don't mm -hmm. know if you may remember his candidacy fell apart because they found out his wife had had mental 
had had a, a, a mental breakdown. Yes. He published it. And he, in response, teared up and started crying at a news release. Mm -hmm. And it, that just killed his, killed his campaign. Mm -hmm. So in 1972, um, uh, Nixon was reelected by a big majority. Um, so then what, what happened mostly because the judge went back and really was questioning these convict, you know, the people who were on trial for breaking in, um, they began to turn the seven people who had broke in because they were worried that they were putting themselves out there and Nixon wasn't going to protect them in the end. Mm -hmm. And they began to turn against each other and they began to uh, sort of uh, let information out about what had really happened. In mm -hmm. the meantime, uh, there had been a committee set up in the House and then the Senate to investigate campaign practices and this was ongoing. So anyway, um, things developed. Uh, what happened basically is that John Dean, if you remember John yeah. Dean, he was an advisor to the president. And he realized that this couldn't go on in terms of the bribing mm -hmm. of the <clears throat> bribing of the seven plumbers, because he had estimated that they would have to pay them up to $1 million to keep them quiet because they kept mm. asking for more money. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so he came forth and spilled the beans and told in a very 300 page testimony, mm. everything had been going on with creep and that Nixon had known about it and so on and so forth. Nixon denied this, but then Dean said there were tapes. Nixon denied there were tapes, but then they got the Supreme court again to say that, the tapes had to be released. The tapes showed that Nixon, you know, knew what was going on and had in fact ordered it. There were public hearings on the Senate side and mm -hmm. basically things just fell apart. And it came to that the Congress would impeach, you know, they had enough votes both in the House and the Senate to impeach Nixon and Nixon resigned. Okay, so. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And um, was there I mean, a point at which I, I think kind of John Dean was effectively kind of presented with the revolver and told to do the decent thing. You know, he was, uh, you know, expected. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't know the backstory of John Dean. I think um, uh, he's he's now on various talk shows and stuff. And um, I think he is acknowledged as being someone who finally got a conscience about yeah. what was the right thing to do. Yeah. And he, you know, and then, you know, after he, after Dean did that, um, Nixon went after him mm -hmm. and, you know, they hired a special prosecutor and he wanted to get the special prosecutor fired, but uh, people in the administration refused to do that and they resigned. So everything was just falling apart. Yeah. And I think John Dean was, was one of probably the most instrumental yes. actor because he gave such a detailed testimony mm -hmm. and he had records. Mm. So they couldn't get him, you know. And it's the, the, the Dean moment, really, is where I think sort of TV Watergate really kicks off because he's there night after night saying more and more extraordinary things. And I think it's then that people start really tuning in going, good grief. You mean, you mean, really? Wow. Yes. So and, and also they set up a committee headed by this uh, senator called Sam Irvin. Mm -hmm. And it was 
termed the Watergate Committee, but it was set up to investigate these campaign violations. And, you know, Sam Irvin was a was a conservative mm-hmm. and uh, but very folksy. And he held these hearings and they were on TV every day, you know, and they had millions of viewers that were watching this thing. So mm-hmm. all of that, I think, had an effect on members of Congress that that were recognizing that they had to peel off from supporting Nixon. There's an interesting parallel um, at, at the moment in, in British politics. Our our Nixon, uh, Boris Johnson, who I think in almost is almost a slightly better fit for for the kind of the Nixon mold than, than, than even Trump. Trump's sort of something else again. Um, but he, you know, brought himself down by by lies and dishonesty and has recently been um, censured. He's, the House of Commons has essentially um, found him un, basically unfit to be a member of parliament. And so he, 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 he quickly um, uh, quitted, quit his seat as, as a member of parliament before he could, he could be banned from, literally banned from the building. But on the committee that you, you would think, well, who are these kind of radical reds who've, um, you know, done a number on him? Well, the committee is majority conservative. So you, you get these kind of um, characters who like, like Nixon, like Johnson in, in America and in Britain, who are um, almost heroes of, of, of the kind of the extreme right or the, the extreme oh. democratic right. But actually, when, you know, one thing that runs through conservatism is, is a sense of kind of respect for institutions and for, you know, whatever, whatever else conservatism is, it, you know, old, old style conservatism is respect for institutions and for the rule of law. And there's stuff you can't do and you just can't. So it's always it's always interesting that that people like Nixon are sometimes born down by the very thing that they they claim to represent. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. 
It's a, it's absolutely true. And and people, there's a popular belief that Watergate and Nick, what happened and Nixon was brought down by the media, but actually no. The media, of course, at the beginning had a big hand in bringing it to light, but it was the institutions, uh, you know, the judicial system through Judge Sirica, the Supreme Court, and also the institutions in Congress, you know, the House and the Senate, that were the ones that really, in the end, mm -hmm. brought him down. And, and this is the, the, the plenty of, uh, you know, if you think of of the the entirety of the U.S. media in the early 1970s, it's a minority in issue that cover the story, and with a degree of reluctance of that that sounds too hot to handle. We let's let's tread very carefully with that. I mean, one of the things that Carol emphasized in his talk on this, Wallace Carroll, was that um, the really exactly what you said, the only newspaper really that stuck, uh, stuck with the story at the beginning was the Washington Post. The other mainstream media did not do it. And for six months, the Washington Post published article after article of the investigation that Woodward and Bernstein were doing as it progressed. And it wasn't until, you know, uh, six months after the initial uh, finding of the break-in that the other newspapers started to come in. Mm. So I think you you cannot take it away from the Washington Post in the sense that they really were out front mm. initially covering the story. And the media not, just as you said, the media didn't necessarily jump on it very quickly, the rest of the media, other than, mm. other than the Post. And the Post... Uh, you know, they they suffered, you know, uh, Catherine Graham, who was the uh, publisher of the Post at the time, you know, there were threats, there were, it was nasty, it was very mm. nasty. Um, and uh, they kept going on it. So um, they published, you know, the New York Times didn't publish anything. Mm. The Post published these 200 articles before the New York Times sort of jumped in. And you find... Um, at a certain level, you know, very kind of established um, uh, kind of lobby journalists uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. When you when you get down to it, very often they don't want to have adversarial relations with the people that they're writing about. Really, yeah, yeah. They, they, it's not that they're blind to wrongdoing, and and often will report on wrongdoing, but very often they they know socially and get on with the people they're reporting on and ideally don't want to have to go to war with them, which I, I guess is understandable on some level, but also it raises serious questions about how journalism operates and functions. I think what you say was very true, I would say, in the 1950s, uh, early 1960s, um, again, in, in the Carroll book, um, when James Reston, who was head of the Washington Bureau of the New York Times, and he in the 1950s, you will recall there was the U-2 incident. Mm -hmm. Ray Powers was shot down. And uh, Eisenhower and the administration said initially it wasn't a spy plane. It was a weather plane that was checking the weather in Russia. And at the time, both Reston and Carroll had known and knew that the U.S. was flying these spy missions over yeah. Russia. But they didn't report it, okay? And no. then what really tipped things over was the Bay of Pigs incident in mm. 1961, which, um, again, this is in the book, um, 
Salzberger, who was the uh, publisher of the New York Times, mm-hmm. Kennedy actually called him and said, don't report anything on the Bay of Pigs because mm-hmm. we don't want people to know and don't also report on what a disaster it was. And so Salzberger called uh, James Reston and said, hold back on the story, which they did. But as a result, Reston got a lot of heat for not mm-hmm. reporting that. And that's when things began to sort of change, whereas... You know, both uh, the 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 journalists who had lived through World War II, okay, yeah. as Carol and Reston had, and the Blitz, and been in London, they did ne- not see the government as as an adversary. You know, they no. felt that to be patriotic was to not unjustly criticize the government, okay. And you can yeah. understand, and to, and certain secrets had to be withheld. Yeah. So. Um, but that changed. That began to change mm. in the early 60s with yeah. these incidents. And then Watergate and the Pentagon Papers, of course, just blew that open. You know, it yeah. sort of really blew it open. And I, th- I think you you make a really important point there. There's this generation of, uh, of journalists in plenty of countries who experienced the Second World War. They viewed themselves in lockstep with uh, with their governments, you know, British, American mm-hmm. And they viewed themselves as, uh, I mean, understandably, you know, these countries are fighting wars of national survival, um, and so, and also, you're you're dealing with um, people, you know, military people, intelligence people, saying, well, this and that are classified, and you can't let people know that because you know we're we're fighting a war here, um, and so it's, it's understandable that you have that mentality, uh, and. Perhaps some of that's actually necessary whilst whilst you are fighting, you know, these this war that will determine the outcome of world history for, for better or ill, for good or ill. Um, but I think there's a generational thing that happens. Um, and, and there is also probably as a result of Watergate and probably as a result of things prior to it and following it, this generational shift away from that that tacit understanding and that faith in government that government is inherently benign and the good guys and and all of that um so i think then that brings us to kind of well where where we are now in a way so if you were going to sort of summarize kind of wallace carroll's you know view on watergate what encapsulate if you sum it up what what was he saying about it well i think um, i think he did point out he wanted to make it clear that it wasn't just the media that had brought down uh, nixon as i said a, a bit earlier it was it was the institutions that really in the end did it hmm. and you know watergate empowered the media quite a bit i mean there was uh I saw a figure where in 1974, trust in the media among the American public was at 74%, which is the highest it's ever been. Mm-hmm. Now, I think it's uh, 32%. Yeah. So it empowered the media. And um, in the public view, you know, the media came out as the heroes of the story a lot of times because you had the movies and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. Um, but I think Carol wanted us to wanted his students to understand some of what you just said that you know everything is a continuum. There's something, and you need judgment. You need to understand context. You need to have understand have 
the responsibility, act with responsibility in terms of what you divulge and don't divulge about the government. And don't just go after people just because you want to be a celebrity journalist mm -hmm. or, you know, you want to arouse a certain amount of viewership that may mm -hmm. already be speaking along the lines that you're thinking. So I think Watergate, he overall thought it was a very positive thing. He thought Richard Nixon for sure should have been, um, you know, he was pardoned by Gerald Ford, but I think mm -hmm. uh, Carol thought he should not have been pardoned because he had committed a crime, obstruction of justice. And I think, you know, now we have a very similar situation in terms of Ukraine, even though I, I haven't researched it, but you better believe there's lots of information about Ukraine that we're not hearing about mm -hmm. that the press probably knows. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's a situation in which, okay, what is the judgment in terms of what we should be releasing and what isn't? Mm -hmm. And I think uh, young journalists, if I can say this, don't always appreciate the context in the way that I think a, a, a journalist like Carol and even James Reston did. Mm -hmm. And maybe underestimate the consequences sometimes of of what they're reporting on. Mm -hmm. And it's not necessarily their job. It's their editor's job mm -hmm. <laughs> to, you know, write herd on them and make sure um, that what is published is along the continuum, continuum of ju a judgment, you know, the right thing to publish at the time. Mm -hmm. I don't think Carol, he was very skeptical of government. He wrote in 1968 an editorial, Quo Vadis, which called for the U.S. to pull out of Vietnam. I'm not sure he knew about the Pentagon Papers then. I would not be surprised if he did. He had excellent mm -hmm. sources. Um, and um, so, you know, I, I don't want to say that he was someone who was an apologist for government because he wasn't. No. But I do think there's a standard at which you have to you have to sort of understand the effect what you write has on on democracy if you want to say that or on our inst the health of our institutions hmm. and um, of course i think i think part of it to talk about context you know the, the, again the second world war this this war uh, against nazism for the survival of uh, the democratic world um, against this sort of genocide and all, all this kind of thing there's there's some arguments say well you know, if you repeat, report that press story, it will reduce morale. It will, you know, it will make the chances of some kind of ugly compromise with Nazism more great. However, it's harder to make that argument about Vietnam. You know, this is it's much more much easier to say as 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 was popularly said at the time. You know, this is an imperial war in Vietnam. It's got you know. Ordinary Americans can't really see what it has to do with them. Why Americans are dying there? Um, activists um, look at it as a kind of uh, an, an, an act of American imperialism. Um, that it, the justifying that kind of um, you know the the only justification, the only reason for limiting information about it is to protect people like Nixon, and so the the argument is is much much weaker. Um, and it's you know it's a it's a, it's a very fraught thing to to kind of do, isn't it? You know, if I report this, what will the consequences be? Yeah. And then, well, you know, plenty of journalists say, well, that's not for me to decide. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes it's it, well, yeah, cool, but it's not your sh your village being shelled, is it? You know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you mentioned earlier something about. Um... 
the close relationships that that journalists can develop with people in office, government officials, and so on and so forth. One of the things that I think is an issue now is that, um, you know, uh, journalists want to have sources and they want to be able to have access to their sources. Mm -hmm. And sometimes if the source says, well, if you print anything like this, I'm going to cut off your access to me. Yeah. That makes the journalists not print it, okay, because they want to be able to continue to do that. And I think we have a lot of that going on now, if sure. I may if I may say so. And it it's it's demonstrated in stories that actually drive me crazy and would have driven Wallace Carroll crazy, mm -hmm. where you have, oh, we talked to 42 unnamed sources. Yeah. What is an unnamed source? You know, is that the guy standing on the street corner that mm. you have to talk to? You know, and this has been a problem about people that will talk on the record or off the record. Mm. Uh, I think um, journalists are maybe a little bit too hesitant to alienate their sources. Yeah. In terms of what they write. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, my my background in reporting many years ago is, well, if they don't go on the record, the story doesn't stand up. And but it's it's not like that anymore. In the, the, yeah. Perhaps perhaps in the age of the age of of social media. I have a a reference for your listeners. There's an excellent book on that called Off the Record by a guy named uh, Norman Perlstein, who was the right. content editor of Time Magazine, and he uh, uh, wrote a very good book about how one should or shouldn't use off the record sources. Mm -hmm. And he got a lot of heat for it because not to veer too off, but if you remember the Valerie Plame uh, situation in the US, uh, New York Times reporter was put in jail because she wouldn't reveal her sources. Mm -hmm. And Bernstein did not defend her. He said, you know, at some in some cases, and he looked at the legal precedents, reporters, if the if the courts tell them they have to reveal their sources, need to do it. Yeah. Anyway, that's the side. I just wanted to get in a comment about that book because it's it's really really good. If you're interested, if you're a journalist and you're interested, I, in I will put a link to it in the in the show notes. Mary, there we there we finish. It's been an absolute joy to have you back on the on the podcast, and uh, I hope we can continue this conversation uh, further um about uh well about who knows what but <laughs> anyway thank you so much and we'll catch you again soon and yes. um your um centuries witness that was the book wasn't it that's still available to, in all good bookshops it's still available i have to put in a little plug it's won several awards and uh like many awards <laughs> but uh what i'm most happy about is it's a finalist in what's called the Sperber Awards at Fordham University. Wow. And uh, this is this is a thing that just looks at biographies and memoirs of journalists. And it's one of only four that was nominated. So it's been very well received, which which is, is heartening. And that's, I think important in terms of the journalism profession. That's fantastic. So I'll put a link in that as well. And yeah. um, let us finish there. Thanks. Okay, thank you, Nick.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.